Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, thanks for joining us today. We have um, some very timely topics to talk about here. I mean, it's coming right into the holidays, John, and you know, uh, Black Friday is right here. It is. You got to be planning you on what you're going to buy and what you're not going to buy. Gotta exactly. Be careful. And so we got the five ways to trim your holiday budget here. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about the Black Friday, how to get the good sales, but also, <clears throat> you know, in general, just how to control the expenses coming into the holidays so you don't just let it get out of control and ruin your, your January. Yeah, and we're going to follow that up with a real exciting topic. Uh, we're going to talk about the Black 2008 year. Remember how bad that year was? Wow! Do we really want to revisit that? We I mean. do. It's a great, it's a great learning, great lesson. Um, so, going to actually pulled an article from ten years ago um, in two thousand and eight, and the title of it is "Is Don't Let Market Volatility Derail Your Investment Strategy." And there's a lot of great lessons coming out of this discussion um, that you can apply today. And, that's uh, you that's know, true. Yeah, there are there's a lot you can learn by looking at history, mm-hmm. and it is interesting to see how drastically things have changed in just ten years, but yet there are some similarities. So yes. uh, that that'll be very interesting, no doubt. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 23 years experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, check out our website. It's moneymd.net. We have the podcast links up there. We also have a lot of videos, a lot of information, a lot of tools. Uh, we have some calculators, retirement plan, planning. You can go out there and take a look at uh, Facebook page. We put a uh, prescription of the week out there every week, video style, and uh, we tweet uh, periodically. So a lot of, lot of different places. Yeah, so a lot of information out there by us. You can also email us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, we're going to start off with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this is, um, you know, finally through the political season, right? Thank, thank goodness. Yeah, <clears> at least for a little while. Try to see all the political ads. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And, um, you know, there's always concern about who's going to win, you know, um, the Congress and, yes. and the presidency, whether it's Republican and Democrat. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter from the market standpoint. Um, you know, we're going to have a split Congress. And, um, you know, you've got Democrats in the House and Republicans in the Senate. And, you know, over the last 80 years, the S&P 500 has gained about 11% per year when the Congress is split. And that's regardless of whoever's in the White House, Democrat or Republican. So it, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. That's right. I mean, that's actually the best. Uh, when you look at the different splits, the way things could be like all Democrat, all Republican, um, the split Congress is actually the best scenario for the markets in terms of returns. It has done the best in the, under that scenario than it has in any you know political scenario. So uh, yeah, people get spun up about elections, and you really shouldn't be making investment decisions based on elections. No, definitely not. So I think, but I, but I think it does bode well that you know there won't be a lot of big legislation coming out of Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, since it is split and, and the market kind of likes that, you know, it, it, I mean, yeah, maybe it's do nothing, but it's also undo nothing That's as right. I've heard it said. <laughs> so yeah, there's some certainty. 
certainty. Uh, market, nothing's going to get done. Nothing's so. going to get done. So markets kind of like that. Sad commentary on yep, our yep. government, but that's the way it works. So interesting fact of the week. And that leads up here to our first topic, and that is the five ways to trim your holiday budget. Yeah, John, I mean, Thanksgiving, Christmas, right around the corner here. Thanksgiving next week. Um, it's pretty amazing we're already here. But, you know, such a fun time of the year, though, um, to spend with family, you know, and, and many people enjoy the shopping around Black Friday. But there is kind of a dark side to the holidays you have to be careful of. You know, Christmas and Thanksgiving shouldn't be an excuse to blow the budget and spend in, you know, send the credit cards in the orbit. Um, for most people, the holidays are a great time of year to enjoy your family, celebrate the reason for the season, exchange some gifts. Of course, the problem is that, you know, this is a time when many people explode the balances on their credit cards and they ruin the following year with more debt. So, you know, there's a reason that January is the worst month for most charities, and it's because people are out of money and they stop giving for a while. And the holidays are also a stressful time for some people as they struggle to come up with money and nice gifts on a tight budget. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder why we don't just exchange maybe gift cards so we can all <laughs> yeah. kind of go and buy our essentials with it, and uh, it doesn't really cost us anything. Um, but that's not very thoughtful. I, I know that's not very thoughtful. Oh, come on, it's Steve. Not the spirit of the season, but you know, the point is we have to figure out some ways to keep it under control. So, um, you know, when you're not <clears throat> trying to get the perfect gift, sometimes it's easier to buy an expensive gift to make sure it's appreciated, but we have to resist that temptation. I mean, after all this, the spirit of the season is love and family and, you know, not spending so much money that it becomes painful. So anyway, here are some ideas to help you keep Christmas from becoming a financial burden that lasts all year long. Yeah, the first one is is um, make sure that you shop around and get a great deal. And just because it's a Black Friday deal, it doesn't mean that you're going to save a ton of money associated with it. So, <clears throat> of course, Black Friday is a great time you know, to get some amazing deals, but you got to make sure that you do some shopping on it. There's some great apps out there to check them out and, and – um, we hear that Walmart has a 65-inch smart 4K TV for about 400 bucks. Yeah, I mean, you could already see that on TGI Black Friday's app. Um, you can see all the deals out there, and, I mean, that's an amazing deal, 400 bucks for, you know. Yeah, that's a nice TV. That is, 65-inch. And and then there's, uh, you know, f- uh, another app called Fat Wallet where you can see the actual ads as they uh, are going to appear in the newspaper. And sometimes, like you said, they're already out there. So another one um, uh, is Black Friday by it's by Via V I A, where you can uh, browse the deals by categories and stores, and create some shopping lists. So you gotta kind of have need to have a target going into this, otherwise you can kind of go off the path. Yeah, and it's kind of amazing on these apps. I mean, you can already see the deals that are going to be in the newspaper, you know, a week from now, or you know, even you can even see them like two weeks out if you pull up the apps early. So you got to have a plan. I mean, the point is you need to save big for your shopping this season, not just the normal 10 to 20% off. I mean, everybody knows winter clothes are on on sale like 50 to 70% off in January, right? And summer clothes can be the same thing in August. Um, that's the kind of deals we're talking about here. So maybe you start shopping for next Christmas this January and, you know, get get the great after Christmas sales. I mean, you could even make an, a, deal to, a deal with your family to kind of exchange gifts in January so you can buy some of those things on sale. 
And that's sort of what Kathy and I do. We allocate a certain amount of money for Christmas, and then then we we spend it at our leisure in January. Um, but another idea is to agree between family members that all the gifts will be homemade. Um, we've done that before in our family, and it's really appreciated. Um, people really like that. I know it takes some time, but um, still, I mean, it's you can save a bundle. Obviously, I mean, if you don't draw names, this could be a huge task to create a lot of crafts or presents. <laughs> For everybody. Yeah, but um, but if you already are fairly handy and you draw names, this can be a wonderful tradition with some very meaningful gifts. Um, I built some really nice bird feeders one year, and we weren't drawing names back then, so it was a huge job, so we learned from that. Um, but I mean, you know, these had copper roofs, hand painted, you know, foliage on the outside. <laughs> it took a long time. It did. We stole the, the design from the Audubon shop <clears throat> down in Charleston where it was listed for like $250. I took a picture of it and then I came back and reproduced it, <laughs> you know, but it warms my heart to still see those on display. I mean, that was over 10 years ago. Still see those at families' houses whenever I go visit. So um, they've lasted sometime. that long. They have. They're, they're hanging, you know, they usually hang them under the garage or something, <clears> a bird feeder <throat> mm-hmm. or under the eave or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, they've lasted and, and they really look great. Um, so, But we also have paintings and we have items that family members have given us that doing homemade gifts one year um, that are in our, our home. And, you know, it just means a lot. I mean, we have a great coffee table that uh, <clears throat> that Kathy's mom, I gave to Kathy's mom, and me and Josh built it one year, and she seems to really appreciate that. Um, so if you draw names and you have some some crafts, some handy folks in the family, you can do a lot. And the kids can even do some kind of art. Um, they can get somebody to help them maybe build something or, or sew or knit. It doesn't have to be something that's incredible to be a real keepsake and to really be appreciated. Um, you know, and many of these items, you know, they get turned into kind of family heirlooms, which are much more meaningful than a new shirt. So if you don't have a skill, then maybe find a new recipe and make some candy. It will be appreciated, and it will cost a lot less. It'll be very little in terms of cost. Yeah, and another one here, Steve, that you just mentioned is um, draw names for gifts and, and not buy it for every single person. That gets really expensive and uh, it can it can eliminate a lot of shopping headaches as well. So, you know, maybe the kids aren't going to like that. So maybe you set an age limit like 12 or maybe 15 um, that, you know, the kids are still getting it. But you can cut down the number tremendously by buying one, you know, decent gift for the extended family. And, you know, that's what that's what we do as well when we sit around and <clears throat> have my brothers, you know, get together and their families and so forth. It makes buying gifts much easier. You're able to focus your energy on just a few gifts. It's going to save a lot of money. And uh, you don't have to worry about spending, you know, 50 bucks on 12 or 15 different people. So um, draw names, you know, that makes it a, a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. And, you know, when you think about it, if two parents, three children, you know, um, families, they draw four names, I mean, you're buying one gift instead of eight or 12 gifts. Um, you know, and trust me on the math. I mean, that means that, you know, you might spend a hundred dollars on a nice gift rather than, uh, four to $600 on a bunch of mediocre gifts, but everybody in the family is saving that. So you just saved like $1,800 between the family. Um, and you know, if you do that, I mean, between two sets of families and your spouses, and then there's another $1,800 in their family. So, it's a huge savings, so you really need to draw names if you have extended families that you that you uh, buy for. 
And then there's the vacation idea. This is one of my favorites, as you know, John. (laughs) (laughs) And we've never quite been able to pull it off. But, uh, you know, this simply involves taking a great extended family vacation instead of exchanging presents. Um, You know, sure, this can be costly, but if you substitute it for some other big vacation, then you're knocking out kind of two for one. Um, This can also be something that's not so expensive, like renting a big house in Florida or taking a a cheap cruise. Um, Either way, you forego buying gifts. You get to, to create some great memories with extended family in a great place. Meanwhile, you've replaced another sweaty summer vacation at the beach with something that's more memorable. <laughs> and also, you know, most families, they don't vacation with the same family you see at Christmas. So you get to spend more than one day together with your your family at Christmas. Um, so be careful, you know, not to go where everybody else goes, like Disney World, or it's going to be expensive and it's going to defeat the purpose. But you might consider taking that vacation the week before Christmas because places are deserted the week before Christmas and prices are a lot cheaper. Yeah, and the last one here, Steve, which uh, I, I like a lot is, um, you know, is to donate money or a gift to a charity or maybe a, a needy family instead of exchanging gifts and, um, you know, spending a day on uh, maybe a Habitat for Humanity house um, during the holidays. Some families will pull their Christmas money and help out a needy family um, with a nice but, you know, a budgeted amount, something you kind of go into understanding. Family might send their money to support a missionary or uh, some type of disaster relief. And either way, the giving spirit is demonstrated without all the expectations of expensive gifts. That's a neat way to um, to give back and kind of show the the true meaning of Christmas. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, So anyway, the takeaways here, I mean, Christmas should be a warm, loving experience without trampling on the budget. So make sure you get the best deal by being prepared with the Black Friday apps on your phone and, you know, plan ahead, figure out what you're going to go get. Um, So get some good deals, but also be creative and coordinate with other family members to control the cost. I mean, everybody's going to appreciate that. Draw names to limit the number of gifts. Agree to do some homemade gifts and crafts instead of buying some kind of trendy, expensive items. Maybe take a vacation instead of exchanging presents or or give the gift of service or dollars to a charity instead. There's lots of ways to control the cost, but it takes some coordination and planning. So have that discussion this year at Christmas, you know, and agree to, to take the financial pain out of celebrating the ultimate gift. So that's that's our our uh, way to save lots of money on your holiday budget. That's good. That's good. And that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question is about pulling uh, money from the portfolio. This person was in retirement, pulling about 3% of the uh, total portfolio. And the question was, is should I reduce that amount um, due to the market, you know, volatility and so forth? <clears throat> and, you know, the industry standard, Steve, is about 4%. Sometimes you can go up to 5%. You know, you're looking right. at over 20 or 30 years with some inflation adjustments periodically. So 3% is a pretty safe level. Um, so, I mean, the answer is no, you don't have to reduce that. If you go through a bear market, I mean, you could certainly be conservative. That never hurts. But right. um, 3% is a reasonable level. Yeah, I mean, if you have some flexibility when you're drawing money out, it does help your portfolio. And it can considerably help during a bear market. But, you know, if the market's down 10% and you're drawing 3% out, <clears throat> then that means you're now drawing 3.3% out, right? Mm-hmm. It's an extra 10% that it goes up percentage-wise to your budget. Your 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 portfolio should be able to recover from that fine. 
that that's still a very reasonable amount. Now, if you were pulling five percent out and we go through a forty percent bear market and you're all in stocks, yeah, then all of a sudden you're going to be pulling like you know nine percent out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a problem. So then you got to make some adjustments. But if you're in a proper portfolio and you're diversified and you have some fixed income in there and you're pulling your 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 distribution out of your fixed income piece, then, you know, it shouldn't be a problem if you're pulling, say, 4%. <clears throat> Even if we go through a bear market, <clears throat> you're pulling it out of the fixed income piece and you give the, the uh, equity part of the portfolio plenty of time to recover. So um, <clears throat> you don't have to do that, but having flexibility does help. Does help, no doubt. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, good good question. And that leads up here to our next topic, and that is volatility. You know, I mean, looking at history, not letting the volatility derail your portfolio. Right? Yeah, and I think what's one of the things that, you know, obviously, you and I look on look at quite a bit and um, understand is uh, you look back at history a little bit, volatility is, um, is, is pretty normal. People don't like it. Um, it's a part of investing to get a higher rate of return. I mean, if you want no volatility, you can go sit in cash for 2%, but then you have inflation that's going to eat away at that. So in order to get that higher rate of return, you've got to have some some stock exposure. And um, so I went and you know pulled this article. This is back in 2008, um, in July, July the 30th, 2008. And um, it's talking about not letting market volatility derail your investment strategy. So <clears throat> just going to kind of go back in time 10 years ago. Um, this article was written, and um, so I'm going to kind of talk to it a little bit. You know, the the high Steve back in that time frame was October 2007. Yeah, when this article was written, the um, the market was down about 20 percent, roughly. And um, so, so we're not we're, down that far now, but no. going back to 2008, the markets actually went down about 55. Yeah, this was just the beginning of that it was. massive drop that we had that ended in in March of 2009. 2009. So this is about 9 months before the bottom of the market. That's right. And it so was still down. Yeah. So you know folks that were um you know putting money into the markets at this time, I mean if you look back at the last 10 years, in some cases you've doubled potentially, uh depending on how much stock you know exposure you had, some in some cases even tripled uh that money. So um going back and looking at this you know, the Great Recession, I think, should give people some understanding of what we're going through today. And it's nothing, it's not the same right now. The market certainly could could go down. But, you know, if you look back in, in 2008, uh, there was glo- gloomy economic news. Um, the economic indicators at that time, Steve, um, were really slow. The growth was very, very slow, which is different than today. Unemployment right. um, was about 5.5%. And, um, you know, that was an increase um, of a full point over just a year before. So some of the economic indicators were not good back in 08, which is not the same today, right? Yeah, I mean, that's true. The economy is very strong today. So totally opposite of what we were seeing back then. And that's part of what I was pointing out in the monthly letter about the recessions, you know, and the fact that we we hadn't had a uh, – there aren't many bear markets – that do not accompany a recession. Mm-hmm. We were clearly headed to recession territory back then <clears throat> with these kind of stats. And also oil prices, oil prices that hit an all-time high, they were over 40 to $140 a barrel wow. back then, which now they're like $70 a barrel. Totally so, different. Totally different situation. And that would they, <clears throat> those rising energy prices were actually hurting the economy and, and hurting, it always hurts the economy, but it was hurting stocks. And now we're kind of the opposite because 
we're an oil producer now. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot has changed in who's producing oil now. I mean, the United States is a big oil producer, so higher energy prices, higher oil prices actually help a lot of stocks today, whereas they didn't back then. So it's it's interesting how that was. And then we have the subprime loan crisis <clears throat> where, you know, you had uh, uh, some, you know, firms that were, were, were having trouble because of these subprime loans that were starting to, to fail. Yeah, and the subprime, subprime loans really hit the uh, real estate industry, financial services, as we saw Um and, um, you know, the subprime crisis, um, you know, spread to some of the consumers. They were forced to pull back from the spending standpoint. So, you know, again, there were a lot of factors that were going on. There's always factors when you look out there that aren't that aren't positive, right? That's I mean, right. Every, I mean, Absolutely. You could look back in 2016, right before the markets took off, and there weren't a lot of positive things going on there either. But, you know, back then we saw international stocks not doing well. Yeah, that's right. They were down 20 to 30 percent back then. And um, so they kind of started, you know, they they were down, I guess they were down similar to the U.S. market. U.S. market mm-hmm. was already down 20 percent back then as well. But that's what happens when markets go down. You tend to see all the markets fall together. They don't, you know, they don't really diversification in stocks doesn't do a lot when markets are headed down. But then when they start to recover, diversification makes a big difference in terms of how you recover and how fast you recover. But, uh, yeah, everything was back was down back then. Yeah, and when you look at, at this year, kind of where we are now, um, you know, we see the, the U.S. markets are flat. International is actually down pretty significant. And, you know, when stock prices drop, Steve, that, that means that <clears throat> their price-to-earnings ratio, their price of their stock to the earnings that they're projecting is lower and it can be on sale, and um, yeah, the valuation, the valuation, right, is very low. That's and, right. And it's interesting. We look at some graphs uh, and the statistics of the industry during this time frame. There were so many people selling. I think um, DFA did a, a, a study in uh, from two thousand eight to two thousand twelve. There was about five hundred billion dollars of um, stock mutual funds that were sold cash by loans, the industry. Yeah. Right, they were going out, going to cash and bond funds, and in, in DFA there was a steady increase. So. Our view of this is, you know, sometimes these are good times to buy. Yeah, if you're saving money and you're you're you're, you're in the saving mode um, and you're investing, this is a great time to buy. I mean, volatility is a good is good for you because you buy more shares and you buy you you buy you know stocks when they're really cheap when markets are down like that. So um, it helps people, you know. I mean, you're buying at very low values, and when they recover, you recover big. So. Yeah, and I think the the quote by Warren Buffett there. I mean, yeah, yeah, everybody looks at him as kind of the, you know, the the Omaha, the guy who who knows how to invest in the stock market. And some of his wisdom is just very simple, but it's so true. Yeah, the world's most <clears throat> famous investor. Um, and what he said was, you know, back then he was saying most people get interested in stocks when everybody else <clears throat> is. Um, the time to get in, in, interested is when no one else is. You can't buy what is popular and do well. The the dumbest reason in the world for buying a stock is because it's going up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's you, very simple. It's very simple. You want to buy when they're down, not when they're going up. Yeah. So if you have room in your your portfolio um, to add some investments, you know, buying like you were saying, you're able to buy sh- shares um, cheaper. So the 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 real way to build wealth is is the more shares you can accumulate the better chance of it, um, you know, being a very large amount in the future. So if you can buy cheap shares, uh, that has worked out very well historically. Yeah. And that is an academic principle too. You know, value stocks return more than growth stocks, 
There's a reason for that because when you buy value stocks, you're buying stocks when they're cheap. You're buying stocks when they're down. And that's the principle that we follow with our investments. And, you know, sometimes it requires some patience because growth stocks do outperform sometimes. But over time, if you if you weight your portfolio toward value and you buy stocks when they're cheap, you will get a higher return. And that's that's basically what he's espousing here when he's talking about investing while the market is down. You're buying more value stocks. You're buying things that are cheap. Yeah. So the key here is, is you know, we talk about this a lot, but have a long-term strategy, have a plan, be diversified, look at your goals, your risk tolerance, your time horizon, and stick with it. Um, you know, the last quote on here is, bad times don't last, but smart investors do. So, um, you know, we we see these times that we're going through as as opportunities. We don't know when the markets are going to turn. They may go down from here, but it'll be another opportunity to buy some low. And if you're in retirement and you have it structured right, you can pull that income from your bond side. And I would even say, you know, looking at this time period and all these things that were going on in July of 2008, if you'd have been invested then and you'd have been adding money and you, you, you know, you wouldn't, dare have wanted to sell. In hindsight, (laughs) markets hit the bottom about, I'd say about eight months later, Mm -hmm. they hit the bottom. But then they recovered dramatically over the next 12 months. So, you know, just a couple years later, you were back up and you were headed to new highs. And and that's the point here. Yeah. The interesting thing is, and I'm sure you remember this, in 2008, the S&P was down about 40% roughly. Well, in 2009, the first two months of the year were down 20%. Started off really a horrible year, That's and then right. March the 9th, as you mentioned, was the low point. Well, 2009 ended up like up 20 or 30 percent. It was a so, great year, yeah. I mean, it started off horrible, and um, I remember I had a client um, who's still with us today that was investing in 2008, and I was just talking him through it. I'm like, dude, you're buying shares low. And this was in October when the markets were off about 20%. So, you know, we don't know when the markets will turn around. We've seen, you know, volatility like we we just experienced in the markets. And um, if you can position yourself correctly, it can actually be a a positive in your financial situation. Absolutely. Yep. Good, good discussion. Okay. And that leads us to our last thing. And that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, so Steve, we're talking a lot about medical costs. Um, we always have folks coming in and uh, planning for retirement. If you're before 65 and your company's not providing it, what can you do? And <clears throat> there are some options out there. Um, one of them is, is Metashare.com uh, is right. a website. So Metashare is uh, it's not um, HSA compliant. It has a much lower cost, typical, um, typically than what you see on the open market. Um, I've priced it out for myself. We're, we're paying... Um, about 800 bucks a month, and this was closer to 400 So it's about $400 a month cheaper. But there's some things that... Um, there are some caveats. Some caveats. <clears throat> you got you to follow certain rules. Um, you've got to, um, you know, make sure that you're, uh, you know, not um, causing any health issues by your activities and so forth. Pre-existing conditions are also something they look at as well. So They're excluded for three years. That's right. <clears throat> that's right. So it's not and- perfect for everybody, but it is an option. Yeah, it doesn't fit everybody. I mean, it's a Christian-based organization. You have to agree to a, a, a you know profession of faith um, statement, and then you um, pre-existing conditions are excluded. Yeah, if you're a smoker, they use any kind of tobacco, they will not you know uh, accept you. But yeah, like you said, the premiums are like a half to even a third in some cases of what you would get in a regular medical plan, and you know they have the share amount, which is your premium. 
and they have this annual household portion, which is your deductible. Mm -hmm. So it works just like insurance, although it's not insurance, um, but it uses the largest uh, largest PPO uh, group in in the country as well. So when you go to the doctor, it's kind of the same. It it goes, you know, you have a card and Mm -hmm. you have a PPO group that it goes through. So anyway, something to check out, though, if you're looking for an alternative to your medical plan. It's called MediShare. And uh, you can find that at metashare.com and um, see what you see what you find out. But it's a good option. All right. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Do tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. And email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Smart Investor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Gang Associates, a registered investment advisor. 